Welcome back to the Planet Jesus podcast. This is episode 14, The Kingdom of God. And this episode, we will consider what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. What is the culture of that kingdom? Where did that meaning come from? How that meaning has been ignored or twisted? And what we can do to recover our purpose. By the way, the purpose that I hope to recover will be the same for Christians, Jews, and Muslims. The purpose was and remains to be a blessing to all people. It was the mandate to Abraham, expressed in many veiled ways by kings and prophets of Hebrew fame, and in tangible ways uh, by Jesus himself. So let's dig in. Over the last few weeks in my local church, I've been reading and commenting on the Gospel of Luke, uh, mainly chapters 8, 9, 10, 11. I go through the entire book, uh, verse by verse, uh, trying to pick out the symbolism and the imagery and uh, the truisms that are being delivered by the Gospel writers. It's very important to recognize that what they were doing is they were seeing the life of Christ or they were hearing about it through oral tradition, and they began to see patterns of how his life was either a fulfillment or a rejection of what had happened in the Jewish past. From creation all the way through till Jesus' time, all of those recordings in the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, Jesus' life and actions were either exemplify them to a higher degree, and, and, and I'll get into some details later, or it was a rejection of those things. And so I thought that as I was going through them, the, the formation or the formulation of the kingdom of God uh, became really uh, clear in my mind. And what really became clear is how much the Christian specifically the Christian, because that's the only one I have a right to speak to, the Christian world has failed to understand the kingdom and what Jesus was really trying to lay out there. The first hint of meaning on what the kingdom of God is all about comes from Genesis 1, 26 through 28, where uh, God creates man. Let's look at that real quick. So, God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion. See, there's your ruling word right there. Over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So there are two key things that come out of those scriptures that I think are mandates for humankind. And that was that they were to have dominion and rule over the rest of the creation, and that they were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So fruitfulness and multiplication and dominion 
were the two things that they would have. I think it's interesting that, um, that man and woman here are given co-dominion. They are vice regents with the creator over the creation. It's not until after uh, there's trouble, so to speak, in paradise, that the man is given dominion over the woman. And up until that time, humanity was to co-rule. And so something is broken in what the Christians traditionally call the fall, which I don't know if that's the right language for that. We'll get to that another day. But whatever happened there, it changed the relationship between man and woman. And I think that fundamentally shows that we changed the whole overall relationship between man, humanity. Humanity now had some that would rule over others. But that seems to be part of a, a, a curse or a fall or a brokenness that's inserted into humanity. Not the ideal that was identified in Genesis 1, 26-28. They were to have co-dominion. They were to have co-rulership. So I think it's important that when we start to think about the kingdom, we're thinking about it in its original context. And that is that we were all kings. We were all priests. And we were given dominion together over the creation. Not to have dominion and, and power over one another. Uh, Walter Brueggemann, who's one of my favorite, favorite uh, authors and speakers, uh, he was commenting on Genesis 126. He says, quote, It is plausible that the language of Genesis 1, 26 through 31 reflects an old rubric for enthronement. In such monarchic societies, it is the ruler who images God. But in the Christian tradition, every person is the, quote, new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17, crowned king and queen, entrusted with self-giving rule for the sake of others. The rule of the queen and king is to practice gracious freedom towards others, which lets them be even as the creator does towards us. You see the, 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 understanding that Brueggemann's getting out of that? He's saying that the, the Christian tradition says we're a new creation. And as a new creation, that curse where we have dominion over one another is broken. And what we now have is we're reigning again as vice regents over the earth. And we are to empower people provide gracious freedom to people. The message of the kingdom is a message of freedom and deliverance. I think it's pretty amazing. He's saying that the Christian perspective on humanity is that everyone is in the image of God. And according to the ancient belief that the ruler imaged God in his or her actions, we are all to take the responsibility to practice grace to others. That's a, it's an important point there. If we're images of God, we are to reflect the characteristics of that God. The idols of the ancient Near East, they had some of those characteristics. They had the characteristics of their God. If they were a fertility God, they would be maybe mini-breasted or whatever. They imaged what the God is. And so as we begin to see what God means by calling us His image in the earth... We're to reflect his character. 
And what is his character? To empower and to bless. And so our character is to empower and to bless. Look at that verse over there that Brueggemann quoted in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 17 through 21. Look at, let's look at that real quick. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And I already referenced that. But let's read verse 18 down. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Notice that kingdom language there. A king sends an ambassador, a president sends an ambassador to a nation to to come to terms, come to agreement. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's a very powerful image there, that we are ambassadors in a new kingdom, in a new creation, and we're going through the world and we're calling on people to be reconciled to God. That sin and, and dis-ease and all of these things that have created enmity within the human family, which has created hierarchies, which have created power struggles, which has created empire All of these things, it starts in the garden and it ends in empire, and it's all about the coercion and domination of people. Paul is the author of that book, uh, 1 Corinthians. He's saying that through Jesus' actions, we are a new creation, but this time we're empowered with the idea of self-sacrifice and reconciliation, not driven by the selfish gene. This selfishness would be translated into actions for others. Actions not dissimilar, as I said, to a U.S. ambassador. A U.S. ambassador seeks to come to terms when there is a disagreement or a misunderstanding between the U.S. and another sovereign nation. These misunderstandings are often the result of cultural differences, acceptable normal behavior, uh, interpretations of previous agreements, And that's what Jesus did for God. That's what the Christians as ambassadors are supposed to do. There was a mischaracterization of God going on, a misunderstanding, if you will. And that mischaracterization was that of an angry God looking for a hammer to drop on his creation. It was a holdover from early man's fear of the elements and the cosmic forces things that they had no control over. They imagined battles between the gods, thunder, lightning, wind, the sun. It doesn't take much imagination to translate poor crop yields to the gods are angry. But the message of Jesus and the message his disciples should claim is a message of love, forgiveness, and reconciliation, because that's what we received. That's what the message of Christ as an ambassador to this distant people That's what he was trying to say. He says, you've mischaracterized God. You've misunderstood our agreement. Since I mentioned the idea of God's, maybe it would be a a good idea or helpful to uh, 
look at what the ancient Near Eastern faiths believed about the role and the, and the place of humanity. Because you have to get the concept of what... Ideas are really sticky things. They, they get into our mind and they don't let go. They grip. It's interesting that a false story, and there was a little study done on this, a false story is, even when corrected, is likely to be retained and remembered and then passed on as true. It's very powerful. Story, images and stories and, and ideas are very sticky. And, and so it was with the people that were around uh, the early Hebrew minds, that early Semitic brain that was conceptualizing God and trying to understand the forces. They had competing ideas around them. That those ancient Near Eastern nations like Egypt and Babylon, uh, they had ideas. And those ideas, really, when you get into looking at those original texts and comparing them with the, particularly the first 11 chapters of, of Genesis, but it goes through the entire um, Hebrew scriptures, there's a constant dialogue or a battle that's going on with the ancient Near Eastern idea and the concepts. Uh, Egyptian sources, for example, offer no explanation for the creation of humans. Sumerian and Akkadian sources consistently portray people as having been created to do the work of the gods, work that is essential for the continuing existence of the gods, that the gods were needy, and work that they had grown tired of themselves. So what do you do? You make minions, right? Little mini-me's to go out and do your, your bidding. There is a Babylonian creation myth called the Enuma Elish, and it claimed that humanity was created to bear the God's burdens that those may rest. That's a quotation from it. In Israel, people also believed that they had been created to serve God. The difference was that they saw humanity as having been given a priestly role in sacred space rather than as a slave laborer to meet the needs of the deity. So when you hear Jews, Christians, and Muslims talking about serving God, it's not slavish. It's not supposed to be slavish. That's the mindset that was passed down from the gods of the ancient Near East. They were, man was created to slavishly provide for the gods. But instead of man providing food for the gods, what does Genesis 2 say? That God planted a garden to provide food for the needs of the people, rather than the people providing the needs for him or her. The explanation offered in ancient Near Eastern texts shows that the role of people was to provide sustenance for the gods. People are then afterthought, just seen as another part of the cosmos that helps the gods function. In Israel, the cosmos functions for people and in relationship to them. See how highly Israel has elevated humanity above this slavish view? Man is made vice-regent. Man is given dominion. Man is being blessed. Man is being provided food by the gods, not the other way around. If you're interested in reading, by the way, uh, more about ancient Near Eastern thought and how it overlapped and was at times contradicted by the Old Testament, uh, check out John Walton's book, Ancient Near Eastern Thought and the Old Testament. 
introducing the conceptual world of the Hebrew Bible. It's a, it's a very interesting read, as my kids would say if you're a geek. An understanding of what it means for people to be in the image of God in the ancient world can be enhanced by exploring other uses of the word image as well. For instance, in both Egypt and Mesopotamia, an idol contained the image of the deity. This allowed the image to possess the attributes of the deity. I was kind of mentioning that earlier. It functioned as a mediator of worship to the deity, and it served as the presence of the deity. This idea of the presence of the deity being in the image was then transferred to the image of the king. Uh, A king would take a new territory and he would put an image of himself there to communicate that you're under my control now, you're under my power now. Across the ancient world, the image of God did the work of God on the earth. But in the Israelite context, as portrayed in the Hebrew Bible, people are in the image of God in that they embody His qualities and do His work. They are symbols of His presence and act on His behalf as representatives. This is the Christian purpose, to reflect God's love to humanity and to others. So let's continue to look at uh, a few biblical perspectives regarding humanity. In Genesis 9, 1-8, through 8, and chapter 10, let's look at those real quick. This is, this is after um, the world was destroyed by a flood, and uh, most of the ancient uh, Near Eastern stories had very similar uh, storylines as, as this, about a flood, a, a global flood, or a regional flood. It's interesting from a Hebrew perspective to just look at this again and see that after, let's assume the, the story as it is, okay, don't, let's not quibble over whether it's global flood or whatever it is. The idea is, is this God is hitting the reset button, that he uncreates and he starts over again, right? Because we, if we went to Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, we'd see that in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, right? So we're talking about cosmic primordial waters and chaos, and something was there, and God formed something from it. And we can debate that later on uh, if you want. But he says here to Noah, after the flood is over, God blessed Noah, just like he did in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. He blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So the same commission that he gave the original couple. And he says, the fear of you and dread shall be on every beast of the earth and every bird of the heaven and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. So there's the dominion part of it. So they have dominion and fruitfulness and blessing that's still uh, being given by God to mankind. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Okay, remember before, this is interesting to me. Before, it was only the vegetables that were to be food for people and animals. And now, now it says that every, living, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything now. And you, be fruitful and multiply. 
team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the field, as many as come out of the ark, and every beast of the earth. I have established my covenant. The idea is is that the same blessings that came to um, Adam and Eve, the first couple, they are now passed on to uh, Noah and his sons and their children. And as they begin to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, you can see that right there at the ninth chapter, the next chapter, well, I mean, we broke it up into chapters, but it's chapter 10, and it's talking about the nations that descended from Noah. It starts off, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. So you notice now there's a strong focus on sons instead of uh, man and woman as co-regents, vice-regents with God. Now it's this real strong focus on sons. He starts off chapter 10 by saying, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Uh, If you were to uh, read through this as the Jews did, uh, they did fill the earth. They were blessed by God, all the nations. This is important to get because we're later on going to see how Israel begins to elevate themselves over all the other nations. And what nation hasn't done that? What nation has not become so um, intoxicated with their culture uh, that they do not think that it's higher and better than another? And particularly in the age of of empire and Western culture, it seems like uh, imperialism is is, is built into our DNA. But before that time... God was blessing all of these nations. In the Masoretic text, which is one Hebrew uh, version of the Hebrew scriptures, the Masoretic text, it lists 70 different nations in chapter 10 that descended from Noah and his three sons. In the Septuagint, uh, there are 72 nations that are listed that descended from Noah. It's going to be important to keep these two numbers, 70 and 72, in mind and remember the difference in the number is related to the differences in the Hebrew and the Greek versions of the Jewish scriptures. Uh, Because later on when we look at uh, the Christian scriptures, you're going to see how they leveraged these and depending these numbers and depending on which text they had, they came up with a different uh, number. And, And since these were using highly symbolic Uh, storytelling, uh, then numbers become very important. So in Genesis 11 and 12, that's following uh, this chapter 10, where God is blessing all these 70 or 72 nations, we see that Abraham is highlighted and emphasized. It's like the first 11 chapters of all human history is sped to this point. I mean, it doesn't take long to read those first 11 chapters, and it basically takes you from primordial soup to the nations filling the earth, these 72 or 72 nations filling the earth. Uh, The rest of the narrative of Genesis slows way down. It's in chapter 12 that God calls Abraham to be a blessing to those nations. In in chapter 12, it is written, uh, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you, 
and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So there's this Jewish philosopher uh, from the 12th century named Maimonides. Uh, In his book, A Guide to the Perplexed, uh, he quoted uh, a supposed Sabian text that maligned the character of Abraham. And after which, he quoted this verse, uh, chapter Genesis tw- chapter 12, verses 1, 2, 3, as I just did. And he commented, quote, Because he bore this for the sake of God, may he be exalted. And in point of fact, his, Abraham's, activity has resulted, as we see today, in the consensus of the greater part of the population of earth in glorifying him and consider themselves blessed through his memory, so that those who do not belong to his progeny pretend to descend from him, end quote. That was true in the 12th century with Jews, Christians, and Muslims, And despite the proliferation of secularism, that is still true in the 21st century. As of 2005, estimates classified 54% or 3.6 billion people of the world's population as adherents to one of the Abrahamic faiths. So let's go back to our Bible story here. And if we looked at Genesis 49, and we don't have time to do it, but you'll see that the culmination of the life of Abraham uh, before his descendants go into Egypt and then later become slaves in Egypt, that it identifies 12 sons. And these 12 sons become the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's interesting to me, I just love the numbers, but when you, if you turned over to Exodus uh, chapter 1, when it's talking about the children of Israel uh, going and burying their father and how many of them uh, were in Egypt, it says, these are the names of the sons in in, in Exodus chapter 1, when he says, Israel increases greatly. That's what the title of my, my Bible passage says, Israel increases greatly in Egypt. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came out of Egypt with Jacob, with each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. I think that's interesting. It's almost like for every one of the nations and all of the descendants of of, um, Noah, there is a representative within this Hebrew named Abraham, there's a, there's a representative for each of those nations within this one uh, growing nation. Then Joseph died, it says, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So you see that mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Those Hebrew people were doing it, man. They were having children. They were growing. They started out free, but empire wanted to take control. They became fearful. If we were to drop down, we, we, we know the story. Uh, the Pharaoh, uh, he becomes nervous about the size and the growth. He decides to implement a policy of infanticide for all of the male children that are born and uh, throwing them into the Nile. And 
but the women were having the baby so quick that not even the midwives could get there. And then the midwives themselves didn't, weren't inclined to destroy the children. So the, 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 the environment continued to grow with Jews. And so they were tasked, they were put under heavy load of uh, servitude to the nation of Egypt. And after 430 years of groaning and suffering and, and uh, um, slavery, that's when Moses was born. The story is that he tells Pharaoh, uh, let my people go. Let my son leave. In Exodus, the 12th chapter, we have the great Passover event. This is the great deliverance from slavery for Israel and the day of devastating loss for Egypt with the death of their firstborn. Uh, Israel was commanded to go into their homes and eat the Passover with their shoes on and their staff in their hand and their belts fastened. Uh, This was the posture of preparedness. They were to be prepared. Notice what they have. They have staff. They've They've got their food ready. They've got their bags in their hands. They're ready to go. They were to remain in the house until they heard a call to leave. And while they were in the home, they shared a meal. And if the meal was too much for one family, then they'd call the neighbors and they would share. But whatever happened, they were not to leave. They were not to go from house to house. They were to stay in that house. They were to eat the meal. And then the next morning, Israel left Egypt. They were given material goods by the Egyptians, and they began journeying into the wilderness towards their promised land trusting God for food and water and provision. Psalm 105.37 claims that, Then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. So there was this kind of healthiness that had come to them. They had, they had wealth. They had, they had money in their pockets. They, had, uh, they were strong. Uh, Deuteronomy 29.5 says, I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandals have not worn off your feet. So I don't know, you know, some miracle uh, occurs where their clothes don't wear out. Whatever you want to think about this, uh, whether that was literally true or not, the, the truism was that God provided for them and they had plenty when they left. They had money in their bags when they left Egypt And the whole time they were wandering through the wilderness, they had clothes to wear and shoes on their feet, and they were never without. God wanted Israel to understand his power to provide, and he wanted them to reflect trust in him before the nations. The nations seeing God's goodness to Israel might bring hope for them, right? After all, the worldview was one of scarcity and slavery and domination. Their gods were that way and their kings were that way. There was never enough. There was, the gods always needed more. Remember that the ancient Near Eastern gods were angry and wanted slaves to meet their needs, which were really the needs of the hierarchy, the power structures of the social order, the empire. It was really the empire. The empire, they knew they were not gods. They knew they were flesh and blood. They knew they were vulnerable. That's why they set up schemes to keep themselves in power. But God was going to set up a counter kingdom to the order that was established by the nations. A kingdom not of warrior kings, 
but of priests who would bless and serve, not enslave and dominate. Like Abraham, they were going to accept the insults of the Sabians and commit themselves to God's care. They were going to go through life and not grasp for security or power or position or priority of place, but they were going to commit themselves to God. And somehow by them doing that would be an example to the other nations that maybe they could dial it down a little. Exodus 12 is about the children of Israel being delivered. They travel for a number of months. And in Exodus 19, they finally make it to Mount Sinai. Exodus 19, one through six records that on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and they came to the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and how I brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be a treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exodus 17, 18, and 19 does not give us um, you know, all these distances and travel times and, uh, as clearly as we in the West would like, uh, but it does provide some I- information. Uh, the family of Israel, uh, those 12 sons and all of their descendants, they left Egypt and they journeyed about 750 kilometers or 460 miles to Mount Sinai. I'd say that was a pretty good stretch of the lakes. They traveled, according to the record, southeast down the Sinai Peninsula until they reached the very southern tip. Um, Then somehow they crossed the Straits of Tehran. They arrived at the base of Mount Sinai. So, you know, the waters part there at the Straits of Tehran. They cross over, and, uh, and then the waters close and destroy their pursuers. Uh, then they arrive at the base of Mount Sinai in Saudi Arabia. There they're given the mission as a people. Uh, they were to be a treasured possession from God from among all the nations. So the idea is, is that they were selected to, be, to do some special work that the rest of the nations initially were not to be part of. Yet, the reason that they were a special people is because God was interested in all of the world. That's what he means when he says, all of the earth is mine. The role or the purpose was to be a kingdom of priests. As priests, they would mediate to the whole earth the blessing of God. It's like when he said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And in you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. So there's this transference of blessing. They, the Abraham, and then now here at Mount Sinai, God is telling the entire nation, you're to be the blessing. You're to bless the nations. The earth is mine. Be a blessing. Their role or purpose was to be a kingdom of priests. And as priests, they were to mediate to the whole earth the blessing of God. The point is, God has a global outlook. He is interested in blessing the 70 or the 72 nations that come out of Noah. 
The blessing to Noah in Genesis 9 was extended to his posterity, and it was fulfilled in the life of Abraham and his offspring. After the children of Israel received the law in Mount Sinai, they were to communicate the will of God contained in that law to the nations. The whole earth was the Lord's. And the 70 or the 72 families of the earth were to be blessed by this kingdom of priests. Unfortunately for God, Israel was struck with the same weaknesses towards idolatry as the rest of the nations. So while Moses was up receiving the law on Mount Sinai, you see, uh, or you see that the children of Israel were down in the, in the valley uh, creating new idols. They created the calves. So Moses is up with his three closest companions up on the Mount Sinai. And while he's up there, fire and, and smoke and thundering and is all going on. And the people are looking at that. But they're saying like, I don't know what's happened to Moses. And so they build a golden calf. They throw some gold, Aaron says. We just threw this into the fire. We threw this gold in, these golden earrings into the fire and out came this calf. When Moses gets back down and he sees what they've done, he destroys the golden calf and he casts the golden calf into the water and he mixes the gold with the water and he causes all those who have been idolatrous to drink it. In Numbers 11 verses 24 through 30, Moses calls 70 elders of the tribes of Israel to help him support the needs of the people. Because, you know, it, it's Moses, when, by, when he's gone, they go crazy. So, Moses calls 70 elders of the tribes of Israel to help support the needs of the people. It says that the spirit that was on Moses was then transferred to them. They were empowered to help. Moses claims that his hope uh, was that all the people would be prophets. I bring this story of the 70 up because I think it anticipates not only the support Israel's tribal leaders were to provide for Israel's people, but each leader represented Israel to a particular nation. I think Jesus in his life and the calling of his disciples sees something similar. I think it anticipates when, when Jesus calls, later on we're going to see this, when Jesus calls the 12, when Jesus calls the 70, or in Luke's version, the 72, when he calls them to go out, it's to be a blessing to the nations. It's to go out and finally fulfill what Israel was not fulfilling. I've said a lot of words, so let's summarize what we know. God creates humankind and he elevates it to the level of vice regent. Kings on earth, and not slaves like the creation stories of the competing ancient Near Eastern myths. We know that humankind took the command to have dominion and be fruitful seriously. We see the families of the earth emerge from the flood and divide into 70 or 72 nations. Then one man from a single family from the nations is called by God to be fruitful and multiply, despite his age and the barrenness of his wife, in order to bless the nations that he was separated from. His descendants are found in the tribes of Israel. But as stated by Maimonides, those who do not belong to his progeny pretend to descend from him. As mentioned before, the commission or purpose for Israel was to be a blessing to the nations. The nations are God's focus. He's not xenophobic. So let's spend a few minutes focusing on the Hebrew scriptures and the concept of dominion. Psalm 8 
uh, is this kind of elevation of humankind. And that elevation is balanced with worship and acknowledgement of God. It's all about creation and humanity's role within that creation and God's role in relationship to mankind. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea and whatsoever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So I I think that the point that I want to get out of this is not only its reflection back on the original ideal of humankind's role within the cosmos, but that God was to always be. So it starts with, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And it ends with, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Unless we bookend honor and respect and glory to God, mankind will always descend into domination systems, power. The way that they will exemplify this dominion over the earth is dominion over others to the harm of others, not to the blessing of others. I like the way the power of humankind is removed in these words. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength. The strength of the kingdom of God comes not from the powerful and the mighty and the elite. It it comes from people who are humble and contrite and simple. Let look at another verse, 2 Samuel the 7th chapter. See, David is made king because the people clamored for a king. They wanted a king, they wanted a king. They made Saul king. Saul reigned for about 40 years, was not the best guy, and uh, was replaced by David. And David had peace. Uh, He had rest from his enemies all around him. And he was sitting in his nice home, and he decided, you know what? The Lord still is living in a tent. The Ark of the Covenant is, is in a tent someplace, and I'm sitting here in a house of cedar. So he decided he wanted to build... Um, a temple like all the other gods had. And Nathan the prophet, he asked him, and Nathan said, hey, yeah, I think that's a good idea. Go ahead and do it. But that night, God dealt with Nathan. And when he did, he gave Nathan this this word. He said, um, I will raise up, this is in the 12th verse of 2 Samuel 7, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So we're talking about kingdom here. He, will, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So whatever's going on here, God is promising some future son of David 
that his throne was going to be established forever and that they would have a relationship as father and son. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Let's look at Psalm 89. If you look at verse uh, 4, well, let's look at verse 3. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So he's, this is, I'm just establishing that the love of God towards David was going to establish his throne through all generations. But this is the, he says in the 24th verse, my faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name, he shall, his horn be exalted. So this would be some future son of David would rise up and his strength would be uh, that he would exalt the name of God and that the, the love of God would be with him. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. So just like he got control over the chaotic waters, this future son would, take, would begin to uh, take control of the chaotic waters of this world. And those are people. If you look at uh, Isaiah, um, I think it's 57:20, he says, "The wicked are like a troubled sea that stir up mire and dirt. That primordial sea or the, the sea of the ungodly. These are people, these are nations that are just doing their own thing, living after their own gods. He says he's going he's to give him dominion over those seas. He's going to bring those seas under his control, under his right hand. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And my steadfast love I will keep for him forever. So this future son of David was going to be called the son of God. He was going to be made the highest king of all the earth. Well, what kind of kingdom is this going to be? What kind of king is ideal? The ideal king comes over here in Psalm 72. He says, um, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to you, the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your people with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. But notice this. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. The, the, the nature and the makeup of this king and the kingdom would be about defending the cause of the poor and giving deliverance to the needy. It says down here in the, uh, the 12th verse, For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. And then he goes down in the 17th verse, and look at how this, this crops back up. May his name endure forever. May this king's name endure forever. May his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. So this is like the ultimate, this future son of David was to be the ultimate fulfillment of the promise that was to be made that was made to Abraham and that all of the nations would call him blessed i think that's amazing
All right. To summarize, based on the dominion that God blessed humanity with in Genesis 1, God wants to endow the king of Israel with glory so that he can execute justice for the poor and the marginalized. And the fame of his majesty, balanced with the mercy that he would show, would be recognized as desirable and that the nations would come and serve him. The original kingdom of God was displayed in the descendants of Abraham. But a universal promise of kingdom inclusion was embedded in the promises like all the earth is mine, or the earth will be filled with my glory, or people will be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed, and many more passages. So embedded in all these promises to Israel was the inclusion of the nations. Again, the indictment against God is that he's a xenophobe. That's wrong. His people have been, and our writings, and at times our actions have reflected that xenophobic tendency. But embedded in the noise of ancient dialogue and debate about what the kingdom of God will be like and who will be part of it is the anticipation of a universal inclusion in God's plan of all the nations. Thank you for listening to this point of my message on the kingdom of God. Uh, In the next episode, we will continue it in the New Testament, and hopefully we find some valuable insights. It's the the second half. We'll close in the, uh, the details that I brought out from the Hebrew scriptures.